0: Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast and we have a really awesome guest on for you today, Katie Fetzer, she's, she's uh, the mum of four kids, uh, your eldest is 13, uh, right uh, Katie, yes. and uh, you've got three uh, younger kids that were adopted from foster care as well, yes, yeah, and she's also the founder and uh, executive director of 1018 Strategy.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Now, um, Katie and I had a conversation last week and she was talking about kids pushing buttons and some, some really insightful stuff about this uh, and how, how she has, uh, yeah, how, how, she, how she navigates that how she looks yeah well let's get into it let's get into it um you had this superb you had this superb uh, metaphor about the the mirror and the microscope and uh, and your whole approach about what you do when mm-hmm. kids push your buttons and I'd, I'd love to explore that with you
1: yes so um Kids with trauma definitely love to push buttons. That is for sure. And um, when you have any type of trauma in your background, uh, it seems like your button size gets very big (laughs) at moments, depending on the subject and depending on what's going on. And um, so when I first started my journey as a foster and then eventually an adoptive mother, And I was engaging with children. We've had children in our home all the way from nine days to 17. And so that wide range of age and interactions we found ourselves dealing with a lot of trauma. Um, Some very significant trauma, um, years and years and years of abuse and neglect these kids have endured. And when you're caring for children from hard places you know, the first thing everyone tells you to do is, well, you need to dive into trauma-informed care and learn about how to parent kids with trauma. So I was just so excited. I'm like, yes, I'm going to finally learn how to do this. And I'm going get, to get all the answers and, and I'm going to be able to fix the kids. And all this stuff happens, you know, that, that naive green response that we all have. And um, I heard this still small voice that said yes you are expecting a microscope of understanding but i'm going to hand you a mirror instead and that really landed on me because it was oh i've got to deal with me (laughs) this is this is different (laughs) and so it caused my approach to starting to learn trauma-informed care I felt this nudge that I had to look at it through a lens of a mirror first before I could look at it through trying to diagnose my kids. And when I do that and I, and I, I self-reflect first, like that mirror versus going into a critical diagnosis of others, it allows me to measure how am I responding to the situation? Am I being the adult or am I being the traumatized child in my response? And so, and, it, and it, it, you know, life is hard. Being engaging in these broken places is hard. Parenting children who come from hard places is incredibly challenging. And, and, and even if you've done like, you know, private adoptions and things were smooth and there and there wasn't trauma, quote unquote, there is trauma through the act of adoption, there is a loss that has occurred for that child. And so it's a very emotional process. It's a very beautiful process, but it's a very emotional one. And um, for me, I felt this nudge and this correction that I could easily walk into the place of trauma-informed care and trauma-informed education being about, it being about the, the child and their issues versus learning it's about me also and my issues and my childhood wounds and navigating through that and processing through that appropriately so that I can parent children with trauma correctly.
0: So you had a huge insight about this, right? That's, mm-hmm. that, so how did that insight happen, Katie?
1: Um well it's like I said it's just that it was like a still small voice it was just you know I I I heard that phrase you're expecting a microscope of understanding and I'm handing you a mirror instead and and so that one phrase is what really caused me to stop and then reevaluate my whole approach to the topic
0: yeah the the reason I kind of draw an, atten- draw an attention to the to the insight um, is because I talk about this quite a lot on the show. I think that insights change our world, but we think we think that strategies change our world. Exactly. We think that strategies change our world, but insights is insights that change our world. Mm-hmm. So on a perhaps um, l- lighter. Uh, a, a slightly lighter topic because I think sometimes lightness helps us with this yes. tricky stuff, right? Yes. So my mum's... My, my, my dad died five years ago, unfortunately. It was the anniversary last, last Friday. And uh, my mum has eventually decided to downsize. Um, and so I've been getting... Uh, so when my grandma died, my dad put did a lot of it to, tried to put a lot of influence on on his mother to downsize early and i just and i and, and i saw that, that I, I saw that this is like 40 50 years ago 40 years ago i saw that that process didn't work right so i was determined not to not not to put any pressure on my mum to downsize mm-hmm. that i would wait until she had that insight right until she right. saw that she wanted to exactly. do exactly Okay, so I gave a space. Oh, Simon, so enlightened! What a compassionate, fantastic guy. However, right
1: <laughs>
0: now we're in the downsizing. I've been losing my patience with her, mm-hmm. right? And yesterday I realised, and we went out for lunch, and I said to him, Mum, I want I want to be as patient with you as you are with me. Mm-hmm. So. I I saw that for myself. I had I had that in, that I had that insight, and that insight will, uh, yeah, well, the degree, the, the the size of the insight, I think, determines the the the, the amount of change that that mm-hmm. we see in our own behavior or or, right. or someone else's behavior. You know, the bigger the insight, um, then the more uh, dramatically our, our behavior changes. So. I want to go have a look at this, the, the, uh, to un, I want to unpack this metaphor, the mirror, mirror of microscope metaphor. And the reason that I'm unpacking it is because mm-hmm. I want to help other people to the insights that you have on that. Now, right. one of my favorite little sayings on this is that you can't, there's no such thing as a secondhand epiphany. <laughs> yes.
1: <Yeah>. We have <laughs> to have
0: them for ourselves. Yourself. We yeah. have to have them ourselves. So I see the, the whole purpose of the Thriving Adoptees podcast is to catalyze those insights, right. and and, and, and um, so by unpacking the metaphor. So you said a mirror of understanding. So we we live in this world, right, uh, of trauma informed, um, right trauma trauma informed care, and all these people running trauma courses, and yes. we think that getting our microscope out and understanding yes. Yes. the minutiae of trauma. Mm-hmm. Is going to make us a better parent. Right. Essentially, that's that's the thing. That's un- understanding is you know like we we we've had twelve. It, it, you've had K to twelve in the states. You've had twelve years of it. You twelve years of elementary, uh, middle mm-hmm. school, high school. You know it, it's the same sort of thing in here in the UK. Then we've gone to university and like understanding is understanding is God, isn't it? You know like sorry Uh, understanding is the holy grail we're we're kind of we're raised on it i you know the more i understand the better i do i need to get my microscope out and i need to understand the minutiae of the trauma and somehow that's going to help me become a better parent but you're saying it's more like a mirror so why what is it why why is it more like a mirror
1: I believe it's because trauma begets trauma, right? And so uh, most of the trauma that occurs with the kids that come into our lives, they have experienced trauma because their parents experienced trauma. Most of us have experienced trauma because our parents who inflicted that trauma also experienced trauma. And so, it's a cycle. And at some point that cycle has to stop. And our human nature is to have critical diagnosis of others, right? That's the microscope is okay. What is, what is the child's issue? What is their trauma? And, and there is relevancy in that. I'm not dismissing that at all, but I believe first before we can view that microscope correctly, We've got to look through that mirror and that self-reflection back on us first. Because um, this, is, this is the reality of parenting children that uh, from hard places is a lot of it's happening in the moment, it's happening quickly, it's happening um, fast. There's not a lot of time to try to do all of this analysis. You're just in the moment and you're dealing with a crisis and you're just responding that mirror of self-reflection to me is the thing that you're thinking about and contemplating as you're going through life and you're going between challenges and it's it's you could call it meditation you know i'm a person of faith so for me it's a part of my dialogue of prayer um and so it's it's just this it's a place of just asking questions to me that mirror is about asking those questions and to really dig deep and go I need to make sure that what I'm seeing, I'm seeing rightly, because we all come to situations from our own perspectives and experiences. And so sometimes you're dealing with a child and they're, you know, they're in the middle of a meltdown. And maybe it's you're looking at it going, okay, they're a kid with trauma, and then it's just all of this and it's never ending, and da-da-da-da-da. And then that that tr- that pushes a button in you from your own childhood trauma. And then you feel hopeless. And then you're like, there's no, this is never going to end. This is never going to get better. Or you can stop for a minute and go. I was once a traumatized child and I am in a healthier place than I once was. There's hope for my child and I can either approach them with hopelessness, or I can engage with them in that hope field. This isn't going to be this way forever. And that's the part of like trauma informed training that I am a little concerned about is that we get so focused on the trauma, we lose a message of hope in the midst of it. For example, my 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 he's almost five and he um, was born severely drug exposed and he has uh, lots of emotional management struggles (laughs) uh, which is normal for that age bracket and then he has a real wiry personality on top of it and then you have severe trauma that he experienced um, through the through his process through his process of becoming a part of our family and he was just losing it. I mean, he was just, he, he was doing an all out blown out fit. I mean, destroying things. We had had escalation. He had, he had smeared poop all over the walls and the bed because he was angry. He was acting out. Um, we were having just escalating issues all the time. And it seemed like it was back to back. It was never going to stop. And I was just in this place of going, I don't know if I can make it another day. And, and, and when you're parenting kids with severe trauma, there are just days that are going to be bad. And I would say one of the first things you need to understand is that your heart is your heart. And don't compare your heart to somebody else's. Like really feel in the moment that your heart is your heart and that's okay. And don't compare your heart to somebody else's heart and go, well, they have it worse, I should be grateful. No. Let's, let's, let's do that trauma-informed approach on ourself first that says, this is hard, and it's okay that I say that this is hard, and it's okay that I'm not handling this well, and it's okay that I don't have all the answers, and it's, and it's okay in this moment. And so we were, we were just in this cycle with him and I, you know, and so, you know, because I'm a person of faith, I just dialogue, I talk to the Lord about it. And I just, I, all day long, I'm just talking like, there's gotta be an answer. There's, there's an answer. There is a hope in the midst of this. This is not his future. This is not his, this is not his long-term outcome. There is hope for him. There is a life for him better than this. And I refuse to accept anything other than that his life is going to be good moving forward. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean it's not going to have challenges. It absolutely will because the trauma is there. You don't deny the trauma. You just focus on a, what you can do to try to produce hope and benefit, beneficial outcomes. So I put him in his room so he could deescalate because that's what we have found. One of the tips we found with him to help him deescalate is he needs to be removed from people so he can get control of his emotions. And so I'd put him in his room and he's like flailing the screaming. And then that minute I had a flashback to my own childhood (laughs) and I was about six or seven. And I remember having a out of control moment, just like he was having. And I just, again, heard that still small voice. I can work miracles in Him, the way I worked miracles in you, there is hope. And I think sometimes it's easy in the moment. We think when you're in the middle of crisis, especially we get very narrowed and we get, we look at what's in front of us. And part of that mirror is looking at our own journey and looking back at the things we've overcome and looking at the things that were challenging for us. Years ago that aren't challenging for us now. And so that mirror is not just a mirror of our imperfections. That mirror is also a mirror at our victories and our in the in the things that are beautiful in our life and the ashes that have been made beautiful, and reflecting on that and it giving us hope and in foraging courage in our spirits and in our hearts to say you know i there is it because there was hope for me there is hope for my child and i'm going to stay in this place i'm not expecting rose-colored glasses and it all to be perfect but i am going to choose to lock in with an approach that says that this is not the end of the story the story is not over the story is being written the story of my life is being written and the story of my child's life is being written And I'm in this opportunity to guide my child through the things I have learned. So the mountains that I have overcome can be the foundation from which he's launched. He's going to have his own mountains, which at least I can help him try to overcome the mountains I've already overcome as a starting place. Does that make sense at all? I'm, I'm sorry. I kind of went on a bunny trail there, but.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I just let you run. I didn't think it was a bunny trail. As well. I thought it, it was a beauty. If it was a, bu- a, a bunny, it was a beautiful one, right? It, 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 it sums up. It, it sums up. Um, well, no, I, I sum it up in as in trauma informed but hope obsessed. But yes, you, you bring um, you bring about a thousand times more depth Um, because of your lived experience with this with with kids Mm -hmm. with your kids I only bring my lived experience of my own stuff right you bring your own experience and what did you say um the 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 mountain as a a jumping off point for, um, it's just beautiful. I can't, I can't put that.
1: Yeah. The mountains I have overcome become the foundation from which my children can launch.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and,
1: and and I think that if you, if you, if you kind of pull off some of the scientific side of trauma informed care, and, and I love that side too, like there is a, there is a time and a place for that. But absolutely, and and it's valid, and and looking at the details of our kids' trauma is important. But sometimes um, you can learn concepts all day long, but how do you apply them in not only your actions, but in the posture of your heart? How How do you process through them so they can be applied in your everyday reality? We can learn concepts all day. We can expand our knowledge But many times what I have found is that there's a breakdown between acquiring knowledge and then applying that knowledge. So that's why, like as an organization, we focus on advocacy training, but we also provide advocacy coaching because you can learn the principles of advocacy all day long. But until you learn to actually apply them in your reality, how do I walk this out? Oftentimes, you, you just gain knowledge, but you don't gain understanding. And there's a difference there. Um, so that application piece, I think, is a piece that we're struggling with in the foster-adopt community overall with how to apply trauma-informed learning. For me, the mirror was a big factor of learning that self-reflection, that self-emotional management piece doing trauma informed care on myself first helps me to be able to do trauma informed approaches with my kids now again in the moment when you're in the moment of stress a lot of times that doesn't happen it's all the head space and the heart space in between those moments of intensity that i can i can i can choose to look at my kids issues and challenges and be overwhelmed by them or i can um i like i like to i like to call people that i know have had hard childhoods and so i'll call them and i'll say and these are people i love and respect and they have beautiful amazing lives like not that they're perfect but they have their lives are great and and they've had their victories they've had their challenges but they've had their victories and so i'll call them and and that to me gives encouragement and i'll call people and i'll talk to people who have overcome a lot in their life and i'll just say I'm in a place with my kids that it feels hopeless. And I just need to hear someone's story that they overcame. And what that does is it infuses hope into my heart that says, this doesn't have, this is not the end of the story. And I'm I'm just a believer that sometimes as as a mom, it seems like whenever I've been at a crossroads where experts and doctors and all these people have given diagnoses and things over my kids. In that, in that crosshairs, a lot of times when I've just said, okay, I'm not in denial what's going on. I understand what's going on. I hear what you're saying, but that is not their future. And I refuse to just accept that. We are going to approach this from the perspective of being informed, being educated, from, and, and, and not being in denial. We are, we're, we're not looking away from it. We're looking at it. But we refuse to say that this is the only outcome that's going to happen, that this story is not over yet. And all of my kids have overcome massive hurdles, massive diagnosis, massive things in their lives, especially in the medical arena. I mean, we've, we've had some major, major scares and in the education arena and the comprehension arena and, and all of these things that are connected with kids with trauma. And it, like I said, it's not in denial, but there is something that happens when you just say that I'm not willing to accept as their future. I'm going to push and I'm going to believe and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do everything I can to, to give my kids hope to give that I'm not resorting to accept this label over their lives. I'm not to me, the trauma informed thing. I don't put a label over my kids heads that says traumatized. And so there's no equals no hope. That's not a label that I put on my kids. I put a label on my kids. that says traumatized. There is victory coming and it has occurred. You know, and it, and it, to me, it's like, I'll tell people all the time. Yes. My kids have been through a lot. Yes. They've had trauma, but the story is not over. The story is being written over their lives. And I refuse to accept just a final say when this, this book is just being started to being written. And, and again, that's hard. You're dealing with kids, um, especially some of the older teens and stuff that we've had in our home. Those things are a little bit different. A lot of times that's more behavioral. A lot of times it's more emotional and, it, and it's, you're dealing with less physical type situations and those are hard and they're making their own choices. But, you know, no matter the age of child that I have cared for with trauma, there are some universal principles. When you look that child in the eye and say, you are loved and you're wanted, you're cherished, you're delighted in, you're valuable. And you speak those words of affirmation over their heart. And you, and you speak over them what your inner child needed to hear when you were that broken little girl or little boy, when you speak those words of life over them, that is what it means to look in the mirror. You are self-reflecting on your own childhood and going, what did I need to hear when I was that broken little girl? What did I need to hear to feel comfort and loved and, affect, and affection how can I communicate that to these kids and, and not just be a parent that's corrective, but be a parent that's guiding them to try to overcome what I have already overcome. How do I teach them how to apply those skills to overcome those things? Um, And of course, they're going to have obstacles that are different than ours. And Um, so like my son, um, you know, that has a lot of the, uh, outbursts we were, (laughs) I found with him, he, he he is a passionate little boy. He is, he is, um, a hundred, percent in any direction he goes, he's hundred percent, you know, angry, a hundred percent, you know, passionate and upset about what's going wrong. And then he becomes a hundred percent in the way he loves people. He loves wholeheartedly and he has such a big heart. And so one day I just was struggling with him and I'm sitting on the side of the bed. And sometimes the biggest thing you can say to your kids is, I don't know. And we're just in this moment. It's been a really hard day. I'm sitting on this, on the bed next to him and, you know, and I'm I'm just, I'm like, what is going on with you? I, you know, and I'm just in this place of just like, I need to take a pause for a moment. So I handle him rightly. And so I'm in this place of like looking at my mirror, I'm in self-reflection. And I just said, mommy does not know what to do. <laughs> mommy does not know what to do. And he looks at me with this face, like you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, mommy does not know what to do. And And he just, but he looked at me with compassion and he immediately looked at me with that soft heart and he put his arms around me. And I turned to him and I said, you know, when you do this, I don't remember what it was now. I think he hit his brother or something like that. I said, when you do this, that is not kind. And I said, and that's not who you are because see this, you, the little boy who just hugged mommy and comforted me is the little boy that's kind. And when you hit your brother, you're not being who you are. And so mom is going to give you consequences and correction, because, not because it's just not right to him, to your brother, but also because it's not who you are. And mommy's job is here to help you become who you are. And it was just one of those moments where I felt like I connected with him at a heart level, other than just being a disciplinarian, other than just being, quote, a parent or correcting. And I think if you come to the heart of trauma-informed care, that is really the heart of it, is that connection piece first. But like I said before, there's that breakdown between learning the concepts and applying it. And I don't think there's anything wrong within the moment telling your kids, I don't know what to do, I don't know. Or just stopping for a moment and giving yourself a pause and just saying, I don't know how to respond to this situation. And I think as parents, a lot of times we feel like we have to have all the answers. And it's amazing to me how a lot of times my kids will tell me what they need me what they need so I can help them overcome something if I'll just stop and not have the answers and really listen to them. And you know, like I said before, there are days that are easier and there are days that are harder. There are days you're going to have these victories and there are going to be days that are really, really hard. Last week was a really, really hard week. And I was spent, my emotional bandwidth was gone. Last week was a very intense week with my kids, just all of their stages and challenges and a development and their needs and school and all of these different things. And it was just a tough week. And the more that I go, this tough week does not define our future as a family. This tough week will not define the end of the story. That's what I try to hold on to in those moments, is I'm holding on to the end of the story. I'm not going to hold on to this reality. Does that make sense at all?
0: It's incredible, incredibly powerful stuff, Katie. One thing, one, one thing popped into my question, uh, popped into my head about, you know, it's the how question. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but before I did, before I go into that, I, I just wanted to say, do you, do you know Do you know why it is that what you do works?
1: Um, well, the, the first thing that I look for is that heart connect. I look for a aha moment in my kids. I look for them to get, get it, not just to be preached at. So like my, my 13 year old, he was dealing with something in school and he was really struggling with the situations in school and there was the staff wasn't handling it really well and we were trying as parents to decide what to do and but he's at that age that you know his friends are there and so there's it's a lot of complexities and so i didn't want to just like hand down a decision as parents and him have to live with the outcome i wanted to make a decision with him and so we, you know, part of our training is that we teach about, um, having a watchful eye to protect children. And so in part of that training, we talk about the 12 flags of manipulation. And so I just pulled that up on the screen and I just started going through with him one by one. And I said, you know, at any point in time, if I, or anyone else has ever done this to you, I want you to tell me, and I just want to have a dialogue with you about manipulation. And so we started going around the different, it's in a circular motion. And we just started going one by one through all the different, you know, flags and manipulation. And we got to one, and he goes, Oh my gosh, that's what my, that's what the director of the school did to me today. And he saw it. He had the aha moment. I did not have the aha moment. He did. And then he was like, I want to make a change in the school. And so, and we had already as parents wanted to make a change weeks before that, but, you know, we needed him to come to that aha moment, like the analogy you used with your mom. And I think a lot of times as parents, we view the how being discipline and correction, and we don't view the how as being teaching and guiding. So those, so our kids can get their own aha moments. And that takes more time and energy. It takes a lot more time and energy to give our kids those skills. And especially when you're parenting kids with trauma, there's times where you're like, I don't have any more energy to give. I don't have another ounce to give. And so, you know, a lot of times it's a matter of do what you can do. Find a way to um, get a, this is the way I an analogy I use a lot and the way I view it myself is it's a pressure cooker. And when you have that pressure cooker lid on tight and that pressure has built up, you've got to release that valve because if you don't, it's going to explode. When you're dealing with the week, like I was dealing last week with, that is not the time for you to try to dive in into a lot of this stuff that is more deep in thought At that moment, when you're dealing with an intense week, your only goal is to release that pressure relief valve. And then when you're having a week that's not intense, that's when you spend more time and energy in, like the mirror analogy and the self-reflection. And I think a lot of times we feel like an expectation that we've got to go deep in thought and analysis and all of this stuff in the middle of crisis and the crisis is not the time to do that. In crisis, you've got to re- you've got to let off that pressure relief valve. That's your number one priority, is let off whatever you got to do to let off that pressure relief valve. If that means that after the kids go to bed, you just go and leave the house, and you know your husband, everybody's asleep. I've done that so many times. <laughs> I put everybody in bed, and my husband was going to bed, and it's like 10 o'clock at night, and I just leave the house. And I need to get out, and I need to get fresh air, and I need to get away from the house, and I need to, I need time for me in that moment. And whatever you've got to do, whatever relieves that pressure relief valve, everybody's different. Everybody has different love languages and different things that cause them to just feel relief from pressure. That is, that is your priority when you're in crisis, when you're just going through the day to day and you're dealing with challenges, but you're not in crisis. That's when we're talking about the process of the mirror, the self-reflection, the, how am I being a trauma informed for myself as well as for my children? Does that make sense? It does. Okay.
0: What, um, what I see from the outside is that, um, uh, Hope gives you gives you your own answers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when when we can't see the wood for the trees, we don't know what to do. That's when we ask the how question. We ask the how question when we're low, right? When we're higher, Mm -hmm. when our mood and our resilience and 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 our level of consciousness, Mm -hmm. when our our, you know our, our view of the world, when we're in a better mood. We see our own answers, but so that's that's why what you that's that that's why I believe in trauma informed,
1: yes, but hope exactly.
0: obsessed because from a place of hope, hope is a higher place,
1: right?
0: Hope is a higher place, uh, you know, and, and God is being with God is a higher place. Being being right. in being in, in, in dialogue with God, being in prayer, being more peaceful, mm-hmm. being you know, just having more space around your thoughts, being at, uh, you know, like arm's length from the, from the kids. All that stuff is gives you, gives you perspective, gives us all perspective. You, you know, in crisis, you, you can't find the solutions in crisis. Mm-mm. Once we've disappeared down the trauma rabbit hole, then we can't, it's really dark now now, we can't see what to do but we keep right. on saying how do i do this like right. everybody everybody in the world
1: right. and, and
0: it's not just parenting it, it's everywhere you know it's
1: everything everywhere
0: how yeah. to how to lose weight how to grow your social media following how right. to <laughs> get how, how, to, how to get more uh, support for your nonprofit how how everybody's right. looking at how right everybody's looking for how we're all we're impatient and but we we're, we're, we're looking Mm -hmm. we only find other people's solutions when we're in a better frame of mind we see our own solutions Mm -hmm. and 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 we we learn how to you know you 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 talked about the difference between you know applying Mm -hmm. applying knowledge you know the difference in knowledge and understanding and and application when we're in a better space when we've got a bit more space between our thoughts we find our own solutions and so do our kids
1: Right. right
0: so do our kids and that's the thing. Everybody's looking. Well, and, and that's why um, uh, Einstein said, you know, we can't solve. Right. We, we can't solve a problem at the same level of thinking that caused it. Or something right. Like that.
1: Well, the, and I the think space it's, high. it's a higher
0: the highest That's where the answer is.
1: Yeah. And I think also when you're low, that's when you need others the most. And, and especially in like the foster adoption arena, a lot of times, it's assumed that your greatest support is other foster adopt families. And sometimes that's the case. What I have found though, is most of my foster adopt friends are so buried under their own struggles that when I call them, because I'm struggling with my kids, it, we just start comparing stories and then we all kind of get gloomy together. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have a girlfriend and she um, she's also on my team for my nonprofit and, um, she was a teacher in inner city schools here in, in, uh, the Kansas city area. And I was, as something happened with one of my kids and those, 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 uh, voices of fear crept in and I could just hear these voices of like, this is just the way it's going to be. And they're messed up and there's no hope and da da da, you know, all those voices of fear were, were hitting me. And I just, I had a moment of vulnerability with her. And I just like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that no matter what I do as a parent to love these kids, that it won't be enough. And I was just really emotional and I was really broken in my own insecurity and my own fractures as a parent. And I just was vulnerable with her in, in the moment. And I just said, what if... What if this is a problem that there's no hope for? And at that moment, it didn't matter that she had never fostered or adopted a child. In that moment, my friend looked at me and she grabbed my shoulders and bear hugged me. And she said, no, that is not their future. That is with this story, Katie, I've heard you say it a hundred times is not over. And she began to preach that hope filled message back to me and back to my heart and she said no we are going to stand together we're going to pray we're going to apply what we know and we are this is not over and and yes it does matter and you have taken on a very difficult challenge for the sake of these kids lives and they may not see it or appreciate it right now but at some point they probably will and if they never do I know you didn't do this for their affirmation. You did this because you knew that this was the right thing to do. You did it because they needed love and you opened your home and your heart to them. And in that moment, my friend with no experience as a foster adopt mom could engage with me and give me that infusion of hope and that infusion of support that I needed when I was low. And you know what, I have very few friends like her. Very, very few. But the ones I have, I call when I'm low. Or like I said, you call people who've overcome the lot when you're low, you that to me when you're low, and you need that pressure relief valve. It's not just a how you sometimes need to be reminded why you did it. You need to be reminded why did i get into this why did i make these choices and sometimes you need to be told how and sometimes you just need somebody to say i'm in this with you and we don't have answers but we're going to do this together and the feeling of not being alone in that moment because that in that moment when you're low that's when all your trauma buttons are in high gear and you're that broken little girl who was abandoned And you feel abandoned in this process. And that friend coming alongside you saying, I don't have the answers, but you are not alone. And I'm in this with you, is a powerful, powerful thing. And she ministered and had a trauma-informed approach to my inner brokenness in that moment. She did trauma-informed care to me so that I could then turn around and do trauma-informed care with my kids. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and she didn't know anything about trauma-informed care.
1: Mm -mm. No, she knows knows some. She has some basic um, training with her as a teacher, but very, very minimal, yeah. And so people that encourage your heart are very important. And most people I have found, I have like two or three people I can call in those moments. It's not very many people. Um, I've learned not to call family when I'm low? Uh, well, I told you not to get in the middle of this. Well, you took on two more. I warned you. That's what you hear a lot of times from family, you know, unless you have a very supportive family. You know, a lot of times that family is not the person to call when you're in that low. Who are the people in your life that give, that make you feel hopeful, that make you feel uh, encourage that make you feel ready to, to keep going in life. Those are the people you call when you're low. And I have a girlfriend and <laughs> I'll call her and say, I just need to vent. And she just knows I need to just go off about whatever's going on. And we just have that kind of relationship with one another. We're just vent buddies. <laughs> you know, and I there's just some people I need to, to, you need someone who's safe for you to vent to. That's not going to cast judgment on the words that come out of your mouth when you're venting. And she's one of those people. Now she's not my person who's going to bear hug me and, and love me in that moment, the way my other friend did, you know, she's not that kind of person. She's just one of those that when I need to vent, she's going to go, well, bring it on sister. Tell me what you think, you know, and she just, she doesn't get rattled easy. She's just a very straightforward spoken person. And so when I say something crazy in my moment of emotion and anger, she doesn't go, oh, look how messed up Katie is. (laughs) You know, she really, she just really goes, okay, you done? You get it all out yet? (laughs) One time I was, I was facing the, the, hard realities of, of, um, what our kids experience. And I had, we had done an emergency situation where some kids, um, were being trafficked and they were picked up and we were their emergency placement. And I was just dealing with the emotion of all of that. And I called my vent buddy (laughs) and I'm like, I just need to, I need to let this out. I just need to, I just need to do it. And so she I just started going off and she goes, well, let's just, let's just take care of them ourselves. (laughs) She's like, girl, I'll come pick you up and we will go take care of these, these bastards ourselves. (laughs) And of course I knew she wasn't serious and I knew it was a moment where she would make me laugh. And it was just one of those friends that I knew in the moment could vent with me um and so my vent buddy is not who i go to for consolation and my consolation person is not who i go to to vent to um so I, those relationships are very important i think they're very good to um evaluate who they are um and it's okay if someone can't hear you vent that's not that's not their their emotional makeup that's okay um it's okay that people can't console you that's okay that's where they are um, you know, and, and like even family i've learned certain family members struggled with with our fostering a journey, especially at first because they were scared of their hearts being hurt. So sometimes it's not an issue of willingness it's an issue of ability and I, and that's to me where that mirror of self reflection is really important, because when we do that microscope when we try to do that microscope we get into critical diagnosis of others and we try to say well you aren't this and you aren't that or you're broken or you're this and sometimes when we when we focus on that mirror instead it allows us to go you know there's certain things i'm not able to do it's not even a willingness i'm just not able to you know and i i just have relationships in my life where i'm I'm learning that you know, I'm not able to be everybody's savior. I'm not able I'm not able to do that. It's not even an issue of willingness, it's an issue of ability. There's only so much time. There's only so much energy, and I can't solve all of these problems. And so there's a there's a moment there where you just have to realize what you can't do and that to be okay. And, you know, and I've had to learn what things I can't do and what things I don't need to try to do because my bandwidth either emotionally or time or capacity can't handle it so that's where that mirror is really important um, because that mirror allows us to reflect in a way so that we can have a microscope of understanding with a clearer perspective if that makes
0: sense it does what what happens? Well, I, what happens when I, I hear a lot of self reflection um, mm-hmm. from other, uh, you know, adoptive parents, foster adoptive parents, uh, and there's a lot of criticism in that.
1: There is. So yeah.
0: y- you don't seem to do that.
1: I, th- I think part of it is uh, again understanding that ability versus willingness is that the foster adopt community what I struggled with finding a foster adopt community that was hope filled so like when we would all get together everyone just complained about the system and so. And I mean, and that was something I felt like in my own journey early on, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, if you put your time and your energy into the brokenness of the system, you will not have time and energy to be a voice for these kids. Don't give it your don't give it your energy or your focus. And so. Um, it's kind of like when I started to learn to drive. I remember I, I would, you know, my I, I was raised by a single mom and she's teaching me to drive. And at the time we lived in a major metropolitan area and there was lots of construction and the and there were all these concrete barriers on the side of the road, and it would freak me out. And I would focus on the concrete barriers. And she would say, if you look at the concrete barriers, you will hit them. You have to look forward and ahead to drive the car so that you don't hit the barriers next to you. And she said, whatever you focus on, that is where you will go. And, and when I was in the middle of the beginning of our foster care journey and dealing with the system, I remembered that. That was one of my aha moments where I had that memory and that flashback. And, it, and when, I, when I heard the words like, get your mind off of the system, I remembered that moment with my mom. And it's like, yes, if I look at the system, if I look at the brokenness of this, I'm going to crash into these concrete barriers It's the same thing with trauma. If we just keep our eyes on the trauma of what we're dealing with in the moment, and we don't look ahead and choose to go, I'm going to look beyond the moment right now, what I'm dealing with, and just focus on taking a step at a time every single day to move forward. I I won't crash. all about where we put our focus it's all where we put our capacity and our time and where i struggled with the foster adopt community and they probably struggled with me (laughs) was that i was really focused on looking ahead and not looking at the brokenness of the system or the brokenness of the situation and so now i find myself in a role where i am teaching and training and and guiding and coaching foster families. So I have to be really careful because most of them are just in this place of, I'm just, I'm just defragging. I'm in crisis mode. And when someone is in crisis, they don't, they can't be corrected when they're in crisis. They just need support. They just need love. They just need event buddy. That's what they need. And so a lot of times like as an like especially as an organization we found that you know when someone's in crisis it's not the time to give them the 10 steps of how to do this when they're in crisis you need to let them vent you need them to feel loved they need to feel supported you need to pray with them you need to do whatever you can to support them emotionally that's the priority do trauma informed care on that individual on that adult and so Um, but the foster adopt communities, a lot of times there is that focus. I think there, I think when you're dealing in the battle, you're just talking about the battle all the time. And so for me, I needed to get people that could give me an outside perspective. I needed to be around, I needed to be around people that were hope filled. So like my, my community of foster adopt families that I connect with, that I go deep with, I call them hope filled. That doesn't mean that they never struggle. That's very important. Hope-filled means that they're in the pursuit that I'm in, which is we are not letting this be the end of our story. We're not letting these negative situations be the end of the story. We are choosing to focus that there is a hope-filled potential outcome, that this is not perfect, that we can't control a lot of these situations, especially when you're dealing with the system. They are, you have no control but there is something encouraging when you get around other foster adopt families that have that hope filled approach. And what happens is that there's always someone in the room who is struggling and there's always someone in the room that has encouragement. And what I found is a lot of times they may not know I'm struggling, but when I give them hope and I choose a hope filled approach to these situations. It infuses hope back into me as I am trying to infuse it into them. And then it's a give and take type of thing. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a healthy and beneficial process. But when I get around like the foster community that is talking about the brokenness and the problems and those types of things, it it just spirals, and you just feel like you're drowning, and you just feel like you just want to hide, <laughs> you know. And it's like, oh, I made the worst mistake of my life, and and th- I should have never done this, and it, and it just it feels hopeless. And you know, the realities that that a lot of foster adopt families are facing are very hard. And like I said earlier letting it be hard and owning that it's hard and, and, and saying, you know, that's okay. There's a lot of comparison, especially in the foster care arena. And even in the adoption area that I've really seen. Well, you know, we took on seven kids. Oh, well, we took on five kids. Well, we took, you know, and so there's this pressure that, oh, I always need to do more. Well, no. Not everyone's capacity is the same. Not everyone's support system is the same. Not everyone's resources are the same. Not everyone's emotional bandwidth is the same. And, you know, I've struggled with a lot of books, like always keep your door open and always do. No, I'm sorry. Like fostering is a very hard reality. There is a beginning date and there is an expiration date. And the biggest things that I've seen, like, especially in the foster community is when When people feel pressured to keep doing it or take just one more child and they're they're on the verge of burnout and then what happens is then everything just spirals after that and then and then it's it becomes collateral damage across the board. So as an organization, we have a phrase that we say a lot, it says i'm not willing to sacrifice my family on the altar of good intentions. And we have to remind ourselves of that a lot, especially as we engage in the brokenness of of children who are being abused and neglected, we're we're dealing with that every single day, the phone constantly rings with another story, with another situation. Here in the States, we have nearly 8 million children who are reported as abused and neglected every single year and only 3% of them end up in foster care. The phone never stops ringing. I can't sacrifice my family. I can't sacrifice the things that are important to me on that altar of good intentions of trying to help those kids. Now, does it mean that we don't help them at all? Absolutely not. It just means that we need all of us to engage to do what we can.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's where I'm really passionate about recruiting the mass public to get involved and recruiting the mass public to get informed and educated. Okay. The mass public needs to be informed on how to how to spot uh, child abuse, how to spot perpetrator behavior, how to do these things. You have any idea how many grandmothers and mothers that I've held in my arms that they wept and they said, I did not see the signs. I did not know this person was harmful for my child. And if I can stop those situations before they happen, and I can try to prevent those and I can give tools and resources to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers and all of these different people on how to prevent those harms to children. And, and then we're going to, Oh, all of us are going to be better, but it's, it is a big, the reality is that the, the scope of the issue for children from hard places especially here in the United States, this is bigger than any organization. This is bigger than any government. It needs us as we, the people to stand up and say, we are going to engage and take care of the kids in our own lives. And what I like to tell people is like, okay, how many kids that are in your immediate family? The average nationally is like six. And so I'll say, okay, write their names down. And I want you to write down one more name of a child that's not in your immediate family, that you believe needs to have a watchful eye over their lives. So your family plus one more, be the watchful eye, take care of the kids in your life. And um, sorry, I got a little bit on a bunny trail there, but (laughs) I'm very passionate about it.
0: (laughs) I I love your passion. And I absolutely (laughs) love it. Um, And I'm gonna uh, ask the listeners to, to, to check, check you out. So as usual, listeners, oh, there's lots you. of links in the, in the show notes. So you can find out more about Katie. You can find out what she's doing, can ke- connect with her. Uh, and uh, this has been a, a truly stupendous episode.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And uh, we'll, we'll speak to you all again very soon, listeners. Thanks for listening.